Ben Barron, and we are back again with Kicking Cancer Cares. Our sponsor for this second half is Marianne McNally. She is a residential real estate specialist with Next Home Realty Connection. Uh, if you're looking to buy a home, sell a home, or just not sure where to start, you can reach out to her at 503-409-4389 and then continue to keep her in your prayers as she's currently battling her own um, breast cancer battle. So we were totally enthralled. With... I know. I was just deep into thought and listening to him. Well, I do remember, Dean, you know, when you lived here, there was a point you and I were standing close side by side and... You mentioned me that you had this farm outside Staten, and if you took a handful of soil from your farm, there were like millions of microbes inside that dirt, and the farm next to you didn't have nearly as many. Well, you almost remembered that right. Billions. Billions. Um, <laughs> there's another. There's a few more zeros behind my number and your number. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, in uh, we've been on this new ranch here in um, Texas for 15 months now, and one of the first things I did is sent it soil test in, but not your normal soil test. What I do is I send it into a, a biological soil test to see the microorganisms and the how many and the diversity and stuff because uh, and I like to get a count. And you know this this soil it has um, it was uh, abused like a lot of or I should say uh, depleted of its natural resources over the decades because of the types of farming and ranching that's been done on it, like 98% of the soils in the United States. And so I like to know where I'm starting. And we started with a few hundred uh, microorganisms, which is better than lots of soil, but we started with a few hundred microorganisms per uh, tablespoon. But our goal is to get it up to at least a billion or two uh, per tablespoon here in the next few years. But it takes a a lot of work and a lot of biological knowledge to make that happen. But as you can imagine, having a few hundred or even a 20,000 microorganisms per tablespoon is a lot different than having a couple billion per tablespoon. Um, and you can, and the diversity is so important because every one of those, and we don't even understand half of them. I mean, I was just listening to a very technical uh, um, podcast on research of some new microorganisms that's just been recently discovered in the soil in the last couple of years and all the things that are learning about what these things do. And I was just so excited about it all mm-hmm. because I know there's even things we don't even have a clue about yet in there. But all of each one of those has a huge dynamic effect in how much minerals can be absorbed because a plant can't absorb mineral straight from a rock. It has to have other things that can make that mineral available to them um, in an organic form that allows them to absorb it through their roots. And this all makes sense when people start hearing it. Oh, yeah, that's true. How can a root absorb a rock? But it can absorb stuff that's in an organic form, just like our gut won't absorb a rock. But if it's in, in the minerals in a rock or in an organic form, then your gut can absorb it into the bloodstream and use that mineral. So it is just, it's the same type of thing for the soil. It is just much more uh, complex than even our guts are technically. And so when you are dealing with such a diverse and amazing system as the soil itself, and we've done so many things over the decades to, to deplete that resource, such as plowing fields, uh, uh, spreading pesticides, putting herbicides, putting NPK fertilizer on there, all that ever does is decrease the microorganisms and and, uh, decrease the diversity, which then makes your soil less productive 
And all my farms that I've regenerated at this point, they get more and more productive every year without any inputs. So that is what our goal is, is to regenerate as much soil as possible of what I do as a living now. But I also is my passion because I really believe that's where all the health benefits come from. So in the long run, it's the long view of where we should go to improve our health in the future. Well, you know, I wouldn't have known by your voice that this is your passion, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did I did share a picture with Amanda a second ago. Uh, your wife, Amy, sent me a picture of some vegetables that she was delivering, and all the color. I was going to say, it, it just looks so colorful and tasty and just uh, beautiful. There's there's some radishes, the white and red radishes in this little basket that Amy's delivering. And there's just color in these vegetables that you just don't see if you go to, to the grocery, grocery store. store. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, oh, and talking about color, I wish I could show you a yolk. Instead of, instead of being yellow or even slightly orange, this is like deep, deep, deep orange. Our eggs yolks are so... We just had some um, customer put a review on and said, I didn't know eggs could taste so phenomenal. I didn't even know they were supposed to be this color when you cracked them open. And then, like our pork, you know, you here on TV, you know, pork is the new white meat, you know, and good pork should be as red and as deep-colored as beef is. And so... Um, if you buy pork in the store and it's, you know, dull and pale, that means it's been raised in confinement because a healthy pig runs all over the pasture and all that creates blood supply to its meat, which then causes all kinds of other things, which we're not going to get into now. So color really does indicate lots of time, whether, uh, whether it's vegetables, whether it's meat, whether it's eggs, what's in it and what the benefits are that you're going to enjoy from them. Interesting. I I love your passion behind all of this. <laughs> I, you have just, I have a smile on my face just listening to you talk about all of this because you can tell it's a true passion of yours and you truly do care and it matters to you. And so it's really cool. And you're sharing some things that I didn't even know. I had no idea that pork was supposed to be dark colored. No, every um, time you go to the grocery store, it's kind of a pink color. Yeah, like a pale pink, like yeah. he was saying. And so now I'm going to be like, oh, well, they were confined, not moving. Which no also blood makes supply. sense that if it had, if it was moving around, then the, the meat would be more red Yeah, the blood flow, right? That makes sense. All of sense. it makes sense. So. Well, and you said something a second ago, Dean, that I think plays in so well to this next discussion. We as consumers become conditioned on whatever the message is. So the message is pork is a new white meat. Well, that we hear that message often enough that we begin to believe that pork should be white. Right. And yet Dean yep. just said pork's not to be white. Right. But we become conditioned into whatever the message is that we're being driven to us, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I want you to weigh in on a message that's been driven to us for probably forty or fifty years. Uh, the protocols to cancer. Because what hap- what's happening now, and, and I'm, I'm going to circle back to a couple episodes ago, um, Dr. Isaacson mentioned a doctor there in Texas named Brzezinski. Have you ever heard of Dr. Brzezinski, Dean? Are you familiar? I have not. So, so Dr. Brzezinski, and there's probably not enough time for your opinion on what he does, but <clears throat> he was a... A researcher in Poland in 1967, he was getting his Ph.D., he discovered that healthy people had this certain peptide that people with cancer did not have. 
So he theorized in the early 70s that if he could find a way to get that peptide out of healthy people and put it into people with cancer, that the cancer might go away. I mean, that's the, that's the process with any theory when it comes to science, except it worked. And so in 1977, he opened a manufacturing plant there in Texas to start creating these neoplastoids to help people with cancer. And uh, we had this whole discussion. I mean, it was amazing, Amanda, this whole discussion. It about, was. Yeah. Well, in this documentary, there, there's this gentleman that says his little daughter, his daughter, his four-year-old daughter, was diagnosed with a very rare brain tumor. And the doctor says, well, you have two options. Option one is you do nothing, and she's going to die. Option two is we give her radiation and chemotherapy, but she's probably still going to die. With, with the fear of she's going to die, then they made the decision to go ahead and at least try something. So they did the chemo and the radiation because that's the standard procedure. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to what you said, Dean. When, when we're told something long enough, you know, pork is now the new white meat. <laughs> when we're told something long enough, we begin to believe it. Mm-hmm. We begin to believe that pork meat should be white, whereas Dean just said it should be red. And we go, no, 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 beef is red, pork is white. <laughs> and we were told, he, this guy was told, this is the standard protocol. You do chemotherapy and you do radiation. And unfortunately, the radiation just fried this little girl's brain so badly, and it wasn't going to work. And then they found Brzezinski, and Brzezinski's method actually cured this little girl. She ultimately passed away not – she didn't die with – she died cancer-free, but the radiation fried her brain bad enough that she died from complications from the radiation. Yeah, that's fine. So I want to just – Take it apart in the book, Dean, and get your thoughts here. Um, it says that alternative medicine, and they actually, unfortunately, had to do that in quotes. So alternative medicine practitioners, and I think to some degree, Dean would fall into the alternative medicine practitioners, mm-hmm. um, know for a fact, and please remember this, and this is all in bold, a tumor is only a symptom of a deeper problem. It is the body's method of encapsulating the invader, the cancer. If you take it out, the cancer is still there. Would you agree with that, Dean? Well, there, certainly the things that um, cause the cancer and the, probably the cells that originally um, are defective are still someplace in the body. And we, just to be clear, not all can, cancers are tumors because tumor indicates a mass and not all cancers are masses. Some are, we have blood cancers and, you know, so we have cancers that aren't encapsulated. So it's, and I don't want to get too technical about all that. So I'm trying not to. So anyways, but so I absolutely believe that yes, any kind of cancer, whether it's in the blood or in the um, a tumor, it is a, it is lots of times a symptom of something else that is wrong. Sometimes it's genetics because there are certainly families that are more predisposed to um, cancers and all that kind of stuff. But I would say that a lot of it is environmental, i.e. half of it is stuff that we expose ourselves to, and the other half is what we don't expose ourselves to, and that is mm-hmm. highly nutritional-dense food, okay? And so in I just 
I also like to tread a little bit careful because even when I was practicing, when somebody would come in with some headaches and I didn't think medicine was going to um, take care of them, I would be glad to refer them to a chiropractor to give that a try. I'm always open to different therapies for different people because I don't believe one shoe fits everyone, right. and I don't believe that everything should be treated exactly the same, it's, it, it, even of the same diagnosis. Diabetes should be treated differently in different people because there are some very slender people with diabetes, and there are some people that have weight issues that have diabetes. Should they be treated the same? They should be treated different. And because, yes, the disease is the same, but they respond differently to different treatments. And so it is so hard in medicine these days because everything's treated by protocol, and that dehumanizes it and it diseases it. That's a new word I just made up. Just said that. <laughs> I liked it. We, we, we end up treating diseases rather than humans. And, it, and that, that always has frustrated me in medicine because um, we need to treat the human. And everybody's body comes to the disease state in a different position or in a different state themselves. And the cause is not always the same. The cause isn't always Agent Orange. There's other people with testicular cancer that didn't get exposed to Agent Orange, right? And right. so, and so, it's not always the same for everyone. And so, we have to be careful, even when we're talking about all the good things that we're talking about on this this show now, and that you guys talk about every week. That overgeneralization. You know, if you you know um, eat broccoli every day, you won't have cancer. Well, that's not true. It's a good thing to eat broccoli. I'm not trying to say don't eat broccoli. I love broccoli. So, and I think it has a lot of health uh, benefits to it. But we have to be very careful on our overgeneralization of things because the biology that's involved in the human body is mega more complex than we even have the knowledge to understand. And then when we start adding the biology that we're trying to manipulate by growing food in this high production fashion, we don't even know what we're doing to that biology that affects the biology that functions within the human body. And so I, w that's why I, I have to agree with you 100% that, that we are, every, if you pull out that tumor, everything that you've done that you did that helped promote that, which is not, I'm not trying to say it's the patient's fault because there's things beyond their control at times, um, but everything that you've done to promote that is still there just because you took, take it out. Right. But in, I don't want to blame it on the individual because it, it, is, it is so much about our culture and the culture as a world because we're push, we push high production rather than high quality. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a, a little follow-up statement that I think is going to validate what you just said, Dean, in, in, in the book. They refer it to the big three, which would be you cut the tumor out. And again... Uh, for those listeners that are just tuning into our show, Dean is absolutely right. Tumor is a mass, so blood cancer is not going to have a tumor inside of right. it. And we had Nolan in the show with this. Yeah. Um, but many, many cancers are going to be a tumor. Not all of them, but many of them are going to be a tumor. And, and so in this case, it says the big three, which is your traditional methods to get the cancer out. And I use cancer in air quotes because, again, we're not talking about the problem. We're just talking about the symptom. Right. But we're getting it out by cutting it out. We're going to poison it out with chemotherapy. We're going to burn it out with radiation. Those are the big three. And, and the book says um, the big three don't deal with the actual cause of the problem. Once this happens and once it is 
back, it actually never left. The cancer never left. You dealt with a tumor, a symptom, right. but the cancer never left. It is now more difficult than ever to kill even through alternative methods. And I want to get into a, a story here in a few minutes of a lady who I met that is going to verify this. But um, I found this intriguing, Dean. There was a German biostatistician. So that word kind of makes sense to me. He's, he studies the statistics of biology. Okay. But he was also an epidemiologist. What is that, Dean? What's an epidemiologist? You, you basically, you do studies on population basis. Okay. So you take everyone that lives in a certain area, or you take all the females that live above the 45th parallel. Or you, so you take populations. You can, you can slice populations any which area, any which way, and then you study that population. So there's this so. German, he, he studies statistics and groups of people. Um, and how's that for breaking? I like that. <laughs> breaking it down into really simple terms here. Um, and he contacted 350 medical centers around the world in the 1980s requesting information about uh, cancer. And by the time that he made his report in 1990, he said he now knew more about chemotherapy than he thought he would ever know. I bet. His report describes chemotherapy as a, quote, scientific wasteland unquote, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that neither physician nor patient were willing to give up, even though there was no scientific evidence it worked. And that was in 1990. Okay. So there was no evidence that the chemotherapy was working, and yet the doctors and the patients weren't willing to stop trying chemotherapy. Um, and then it goes on to the little farther in the book. There's a doctor named Julian Whitaker, who's an MD like Dean, and he says, quote, I wouldn't have chemotherapy or radiation because I'm not interested in therapies that cripple the immune system and, in my opinion, virtually ensure failure for the majority of cancer patients. Yeah. Any thoughts, yeah. Dean? Any thoughts here? Oh, the toxicity, especially back then, the toxicity of chemo would not have um, been worth it for me. And to this day, I don't. I'm still not a fan. I mean, I I don't, you know, take medication just in general, as a general principle, just because I just, i rather not. And and so, and so, I, so that's my bias, but um, I think chemo has come a long way. But back then when that was written, gosh, I agree that it was, it's a wasteland and the side effects were not really worth it. Now, there is. I also leave that, like I did everything in medicine, up to the patient's choice um, because if giving somebody hope is nothing, there's nothing wrong with that um, because sometimes the power of that hope would be enough to help them get better too. So, you know, it's just, so it is, it is a difficult thing for me to say, no one should take chemo, but I don't think I would. Just, I mean, there's, there's certain caveat to that there's certain chemos that might i might consider in certain situations but for in the general rule no yeah i well in in an effort to give hope um what we've been doing dean is kind of following a timeline i started this in 2018 so we've been kind of following a timeline and along that timeline it's it's now uh, about june 2020 um the president of our board back then her name was laura or her name is laura mcsweeney 
Um, she was president of the board, and and she worked for FEMA. And part of her job with FEMA was big disasters. So when they had those huge fires in Northern California, she was then called in to coordinate teams to deal with big disasters, whatever they were. And she said, I have a co-worker that works out of the Seattle office that you should share her story. So I got this story, and then I decided to drive to Seattle to meet this lady. And her story is going to validate a lot of what we've talked about, but also give a lot of hope. Okay. Um, her name is Chris. I'm not going to try to say her last name. It's Polish. She just went by Chris JT. <laughs> uh, and the amazing thing is that she was actually studying volcanology, which is how volcanoes work. That has nothing to do with Spock. That's <laughs> not the planet Vulcan, but she was at the University of Washington studying volcanology when Mount St. Helens blew up. Okay. So all the students were sent down to deal with Mount St. Helens after it blew up. In 1988, she was into her career. Um, she was up in the Bellevue area. She says, while answering the phone, I brushed my hair back over my shoulder and was distracted by a marble-sized lump below my collarbone. So I would say that, you know, yeah. lots of women just brush their hair, but she saw this marble-sized lump about the size of her collarbone. She went into the hospital. She was 38 years old, and she was told that she had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And she said to herself, who gets breast cancer at 38 years old? <laughs> now, it's 1988, so again, protocols. The protocols probably haven't changed a lot, but like Dean says, we've come a long ways in targeted chemotherapy. Right. So they went through the normal protocols for her, and then everything looked great. She's doing wonderful. Um, she went on with her career. She did a whole bunch of stuff with the, with the FEMA group. And then in 2000, which was 12 years later, she's 50 years old, and the cancer came back. She had breast cancer mm-hmm. for a second time at 50 years old. So now she's trying to balance work, family, breast cancer in 2000. Um, at that time, she had a whole history of cancer in her family, and she, at her mother, her aunt, her sister had all died at age 38 oh, wow. from breast cancer, which mm, is when wow. she got diagnosed the first time. <laughs> so she was just feeling really blessed that she had lived to be 50, but she dealt with it the second time at age 50. Fast forward 12 more years, so now it's 2012, and her job had taken her to Costa Rica, and she said she felt a pain in her chest. She says, I knew my companion had returned. Mm-hmm. Gosh darn mm. it. This time I thought to myself of my companion by having a bilateral mastectomy. Mm-hmm. You know what that is, it's right? Both, yeah, yeah. right. She just said, you know what? I'm done with this friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, she says, unfortunately, one of the chemo drugs that I had taken 12 years earlier triggered skin cancer. Oh, so in 2012, at age 62, while dealing with breast cancer the third time, she was also dealing with skin cancer. Jeez. Because the chemo had triggered skin cancer. Man. So, uh, so she said, unfor- you know, the, the drug had triggered. She says, um, I was so happy to be done journeying with this life with this uneasy companion. Hmm. Seven years later, 2019, just before I got this story, at age 69... She caught a bad she she caught a bad flu only to find out it wasn't the flu. Oh my goodness. It was leukemia. Jeez. And this is like the fourth story I've heard where they think it's the flu but it's not the flu it's leukemia. She says mm-hmm. likely brought on by one of the chemo drugs I was given in 2000, 19 years earlier. My goodness. 
so what keeps coming through my head is, you know, we don't make good decisions on fear. Dr. Ox and I talked about that, right? We don't make good decisions out of fear. But that you're, you're scared. I have cancer. Here's the protocol. You need to go chemotherapy. You do the chemotherapy. You think the cancer's gone. 19 years later, you get leukemia triggered by the chemo you used to get rid of the cancer 19 years earlier. Yeah. And, and she battled through that. This would have been 2019. It was right towards the early stages of COVID because we weren't being forced to wear a mask all the time, but we were being encouraged to stay six feet apart. I drove to see Adel to meet this lady. She was training to run a marathon. Oh, wow. Good for her. And a friend of hers said, they just can't kill you, can they? <laughs> nope. She's a fighter. I love it. So her story yeah. definitely inspires a lot of hope. Dean, Absolutely. thank you so much for joining us. Yes, Dean, thank you. I could sit here and pick your brain for hours. It sounds like you are a very well-educated man in many different areas. So thank you for bringing all of your knowledge and information to our show. I want to give a Oh, huge... I had fun. Thank you. Yes, you're so welcome. A huge shout out to our sponsor for this half is Marianne McNally, who is a residential real estate specialist with Next Home Realty Connection, who is currently going through her own battle with breast cancer. So make sure you guys keep her in your prayers. And if you are looking to buy a home or sell a home, definitely reach out to her at 503-409-4389. And we'll be back next week as, as the, the movement, movement continues. continues.